Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Aside from having one of the most epic beards... You're an anti-aging guy, yet the beard, commonly associated with aging, coincidence or as a result of your work with aging, or are you just a beard guy? It's a coincidence. My wife is a beard girl, and she campaigned for it for a while. Eventually, I said, all right, and it came out like this. All right. Well, good. So there's no, uh, there's no greater conspiracy on the beard. Got it. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. 
This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. This show is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show but you want to know where to begin or find out more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm Live programs in Los Angeles, you can go to the website and we'll email you a starter kit of all the top shows here at the Art of Charm. We'll send you fundamentals like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business and networking, negotiation, relationship management, public speaking, and more, pretty much all the stuff we'd wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. We've got our live programs running every week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. Details on that at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp or give us a call here in the office, 888-413-7177 or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything and I'm looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with Dr. Aubrey de Grey. This is an incredible show. He essentially is going to reverse aging and I don't mean he's trying to, I mean this is probably gonna happen. We're going to talk about the difference between diseases and aging and aging-related diseases. We're going to talk about the science behind rejuvenation biotechnology, medicines that will repair the damage that the body does to itself through life as side effects of its normal operation. I know this sounds a little bit super technical, but this is extremely interesting. We're going to dive into some of the ethical questions, like what happens when everybody lives almost forever? What happens when the population explodes? How can we possibly reverse, not halt, reverse aging? and what causes it in the first place. So enjoy this one with Dr. Aubrey de Grey. We're about to do this anti-aging talk, and, and I've read up a little bit, and a lot of it has to do with cellular damage, and my girlfriend is kind of sick, so she's like, let me make you this vitamin C, you know, the emergency or whatever. You ever heard of that stuff? It's like a fizzy drink that you drink that's just like loaded with vitamin C. And I remember reading somewhere that that can actually damage cells as well. But I, I don't know if that's true, and I also don't know, are there things that don't damage cells? Because I feel like everything you consume does stuff to your cells. Uh, okay, well, vitamin C is generally good for you. It soaks up toxic molecules. Uh, but actually, yeah, you're kind of right that everything you do does damage one way or another, as well as doing good. Um, but it's actually worse than that. Even things that you have no choice about doing do you damage. The worst one of all is breathing. Breathing is really bad for you, but unfortunately it's a bit non-negotiable. Yeah, no kidding. So breathing is bad for you. Why is breathing bad for you? Because we're inhaling all kinds of toxic stuff? No, it's worse than that. It's the actual oxygen that's bad for you. What happens is that when you breathe, oxygen gets taken into your cells, and the oxygen is combined with nutrients to extract energy from the nutrients. And that's what breathing is basically for. But unfortunately, the actual chemistry of all of that, the way in which oxygen is combined with nutrients, is really hairy. And things go wrong, and sometimes, rather than energy being um, extracted, uh, toxic chemicals are made, chemicals called free radicals. So basically, we're kind of damned if we do, well, we're definitely damned if we don't breathe, right? That part is strikingly clear. However, yes. <laughs> we're damned if we do, of course, because the thing that we're taking in, regardless of, even if the air is purely pure clean, the what our body does to it is imperfect, right? It's like an imperfect, it's like a combustion engine, maybe, that leaves a little bit of residue and that adds up. How, how close is my analogy? It's an extremely close analogy. Essentially, we can say it's not even just chemistry. It's a matter of physics. Any machine with moving parts is bound to do itself damage as a side effect of its normal operation. Okay. All right. Interesting. First of all, let's back up the truck and introduce you. You're Dr. Aubrey de Grey, uh, and you're, you're based 
despite the accent, in Mountain View, California. Where are you right now? I'm actually in England right now. Oh, okay. I spend my life between the two, um, but I'm going to California tomorrow morning. Great. Good thing we chose the time when you're pretty much as far away as you can get from my studio to do this show. Uh, but I appreciate it. I know it's got to be really late over there as well. And tell us what you're researching, because first of all, when I heard anti-aging, I was like, whatever. You know, I'm sure I'm not the first person to have this reaction, which is like, oh, yeah, okay, immortality, Highlander, insert derision of choice here. But then as I did research and other friends of mine were like, no, you should check this out. And then as I, I met you in uh, Summit Series five years ago or whatever, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is real. This is an actual scientific field that's not designed to sell me like some sort of really expensive vitamins or something, right? Right, yeah. I mean, that's the first thing it's important to say. The organization that's been created around my work, Sense Research Foundation, is a nonprofit. We're a 501c3, and we don't sell anything. We do biomedical research. And yes, it's really hard stuff. We're doing very long-term research, early-stage stuff. But if someone's got to do it, you know, eventually the early-stage stuff does yield dividends, and it becomes slightly less early stage. And certainly uh, one good thing about our current situation is that in a couple of areas, we are actually transferring our findings to the private sector, whether it's to startups or licensing in other ways, and um, thereby uh, obviously increasing the options for how it might be funded. So you're successfully creating some anti-aging technology so a rejuvenation technology is that something is that a real thing that is the exact term that we use rejuvenation biotechnology oh perfect uh all about actually repairing damage the damage that the body does to itself whether by breathing or by other mechanisms and thereby restoring people to what's effectively a younger biological age than they were beforehand so this is not slowing aging down this is genuine rejuvenation i really want to emphasize that the work we do is research. The things that we're aiming to generate, we haven't generated them yet. The therapies that are coming in the future may actually arrive within 10 years in some cases, perhaps within 20 years in the case of the hardest things. That's still a lot of research between now and then. It's amazing that you can predict, or even try to predict for that matter, when something might be ready that seems so, well, I guess for you it's much less abstract than it is for me and everyone listening. But it's really cool because you can see and chart, if you're making this prediction, you can chart progress towards something that is clearly on the horizon. Because 20 years is a long time, but it's it's not that long. I mean, in 10 years, of course, half the time, 10 years ago, I remember fairly clearly where I was, what I was doing. I mean, I was a younger guy, but I wasn't, It's not. it's not a generation ago. This is science fiction, essentially, right now that you're working to create. And of course, that's no surprise. Science fiction often becomes reality. But the idea that aging is a process that the body does to itself, how new is that concept? Because I feel like I just recently learned that and was quite surprised. People don't think about this as like a medical process. They think about it as, oh, you know, you just get older because time. And they don't think about, oh, there's a cellular process that is creating this, and cellular processes can always be or usually be altered. That's why we have things like cancer. So, so you've covered a few things there. The first thing I want to do is to go back to what you said about time frames, and I do want to emphasize a couple of caveats, because, of course, it's extremely clear that any technology that's more than even two years away is an uncertain amount of time away. We just don't know how long it's actually going to be. When I say 20 or 25 years to get all of this working, what I'm saying is a 50% estimate. I think we have a 50-50 chance of getting there by that time. But I completely acknowledge that we have at least a 10% chance of not getting there for 100 years. You know, So this is a very speculative prediction. I think I still have the responsibility to make those predictions because, you know, they may be speculative, but they're going to be more accurate than your predictions. Yeah, which would have said, this is never going to happen because time... <laughs> and, of course, that's important, because if we don't actually give people some idea of how hard something is, then they're going to get it wrong, and they're not going to work hard enough to make it happen. So it's really important to know that it's within striking distance. Yeah, I agree, because if there's no carrots, then all your 
all these brilliant scientists are just working in an office somewhere going, yeah, we're just farting around doing nothing over here. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, the idea that aging is the accumulation of microscopic damage that the body does to itself in the course of its normal operation, that's not a new idea at all. Everyone's known that for a long, long time. And the question has been whether there's anything we can do about that. In general, people have not really been too interested until I came along in looking at the idea of truly repairing comprehensively all the damage the body does to itself. They've been trying to find ways to tweak the way the body works in such a way that it doesn't create damage as quickly as it would naturally do. And that inherently sounds as though it might be easier, but actually it turns out that it's a lot harder than the approach that I've been pioneering because basically the body is so incredibly complicated and also, of course, there's so much that we don't know about how the body works that tweaking it without having unintended side effects that do more harm than good turns out to be basically impossible. Sure, yeah, of course. I mean, this is important, obviously, for everybody because nobody wants to get sick when they get old. The way that I think about aging is that you get older and then you become more susceptible to disease and then, you know, you have to treat the disease and then half the time that kills you. I mean, how accurate is the lay perception of how aging works, what it is, etc. I mean, I guess I still don't totally get why older people get sick more. Why, like, why are our bodies weaker? Why does this happen? Is it just the accumulation of our cells are so damaged through the operation of the machinery that we're now susceptible to all of these things that one of them eventually kills us? Well, so the, you've got to first of all remember that there are different types of disease. So there are diseases which are inherent in being alive, things like Alzheimer's disease or atherosclerosis or most cancers. These things are going to happen to us eventually if we live long enough, just so long as something else doesn't, one or the other doesn't kill us first. Right. Then there are infections. And of course, infections also become more of a problem as we get older. The, old, the elderly are more susceptible to getting infections and to dying from them. And that is a side effect of damage as well, because, of course, the part of what the body does is we have an immune system, which is the machinery designed to actually eliminate infections, and the immune system becomes impaired just as the rest of the body does. The real problem here in terms of terminology and semantics is that people think of Alzheimer's disease, for example, as a disease that might be kind of eliminated from the body in the same way that you might eliminate an infection using a vaccine or uh, whatever. Yeah. And they think of the decline in the immune system's function or the loss of muscle mass or things like that. They don't think of those things as diseases at all. They think of those as natural, whatever the hell that means. Um, so, you know, that's the misconception. We should understand that everything that goes wrong with us, mainly in old age and not beforehand, does so because it's a side effect of the body's normal operation. And therefore, it's not amenable to the same kind of cure that an infection is, but it is amenable to a completely different kind of medical intervention. One, what even prompted the interest in this area, although it should maybe seem obvious to a lot of us? And then how did you start to assemble the team of people that were interested in this? I mean, you must have some rock-solid science. Even if you did, 99.9% of the community would say, you're, you're that crazy guy with the beard who thinks we're all going to live forever someday. So, while I get interested in it, I basically discovered that virtually no other biologists were interested in it. I was astonished to discover that when I was in my late 20s. I thought biologists would all completely see that it was obvious, as I always had, that aging was the world's number one problem. But that turned out not to be the case. So I switched fields. I was originally a computer scientist working on the world's second most important problem, which is that we have to spend so much of our time doing stuff that we don't really want to in order <laughs> to make the world go around. Right. I, I was working in artificial intelligence research. But, uh, yeah, I switched fields. And in terms of how I built up the community and the team, well, of course, it's been incremental. I've been working in this area now for 20 years, and the fundamental idea of sense, the idea that we could do damage repair comprehensively, is 15 years ago. So I've had, I've been around a while now. I guess it just started slowly. You know, I started publishing, of course, in the academic literature, but also talking to people online. And both scientists and non-scientists started to listen increasingly and eventually to understand that what I was saying made quite a lot of sense. And, you know, it's just moved on from there. I love it. You were interested in it because nobody else was interested in it. You're like a science hipster. Have you ever? Well, <laughs> in a way. I'm more of a technology hipster. Okay. You know, I've always, 
been driven by humanitarian motivations. I'm not really the sort of person who is focused on finding things out just for the hell of finding things out. I do so because I want to make a difference in the world. Excellent. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not complaining. I think this is friggin' fascinating. And is this science moving faster or moving forward faster than you thought it would? Or is it moving slower than you thought it would? Or is it about right? Did you have any thoughts about this? Because I feel like this is one of those problems that could be so complex that you could open this up and then just be like, oh my God, this is going to take forever. But when you mention your timeframes, it's like, wow, that's realistic. So to answer that question, I have to come back to the other caveat that I was going to mention before when I was talking about how speculative timeframes are. The other caveat is that the timeframes that I've put forward for this have always been conditional on the science research being funded well enough so that the rate-limiting factor is simply the difficulty of the science. And that has not been the case in the time that I've been working in this area. I started putting timeframes forward maybe um, 10 years ago, and I would say that in that time, we've only brought things forward by maybe three years, which doesn't sound very promising, does it? It sounds as though I was severely over-optimistic. Mm -hmm. But in practice, because of the actual shortage that there has been in bringing money in the door to make this happen, I think it's about right. I think the amount of progress that we have made is about what I would have predicted 10 years ago, given the amount of money that has actually been forthcoming. I think we could be going three times faster if we had proper funding. Why do you think that we're not funding something like this? I mean, it seems obvious, right? Oh, there's a lot of other problems, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it seems I'm really good at not thinking about getting older. And when I was younger, I was even better at it. You know, it was like, oh, future Jordan, I don't envy that guy as I sit there like eating hamburgers and not exercising or whatever, right? And I know there's a ton of people like that, even mid middle-aged people who like can still walk are like, oh, I'm fine. And I'm like, man, you can barely stand up straight. You better get this handled and get in the gym. Is this like a collective thing where we're just – even the smartest of us are good at going, yeah, nah, I'll deal with that later. Yes, it is. It's a collective thing, as you say. I think that it's kind of understandable that people have been like this because let's face it, you know, aging has been this ghastly thing hanging over us since the dawn of civilization, and we haven't been able to do a damn thing about it. So, you know, what does one do in that circumstance? One finds ways to put it out of one's mind and get on with one's miserably short life and make the best of it rather than you know, being preoccupied by this terrible thing that's going to happen in the distant future. Um, but of course, that was all very well back then before there was any kind of real plan for what to do about it. Now there is a plan, and we're actually within striking distance. As I said, it's an enormous part of the problem. It slows things down, and it costs an enormous number of lives. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Can we get a little bit more specific about the types of aging damage that, that go on? Because it, it's, you know, if you're a mechanical guy, you might think, oh, well, you know, fuel hoses get, uh, they get rigid and there's residue in the engine. But can we discuss this a little bit from maybe a layman biology perspective? Like, what's going on in our body that is aging? In fact, the real way in which I was able to get all of this going in a concrete manner was precisely by reaching a level of understanding of aging that allowed me to actually describe in fairly, in very specific terms what the damage of aging really is and how we might go about fixing it. And that's what the SENSE plan is all about. SENSE is all about classifying these many, many different types of damage that the body does to itself into a manageable number of categories, just seven categories uh, described in very concrete terms at the cellular and molecular level. And the, the main use of that classification is to describe the repair strategies. Within each category, there is one repair strategy, a generic approach that, with obviously differences of detail, but only of detail, is able to actually repair all of those various examples within the category. 
So to give an example, stem cells. So well, there's one type of damage called cell loss, cells simply dying and not being automatically replaced by the division of other cells. Very simple idea, very concrete. And stem cell therapy is all about repairing that type of damage. It's all about putting cells into the body, which will divide and transform into replacements for the cells that the body was not replacing on its own. Okay, so like br brain cells maybe are coming to mind, or like liver cells? I don't know. Well, there are lots of different types of cells in the body that do replace themselves perfectly well. The liver is actually a good example of that. Uh, one type of aspect of aging that is mainly caused by this type of damage, by the loss of cells, is actually Parkinson's disease, which is caused by the death of a particular type of neuron, a particular type of brain cell, in one small part of the brain called the substantia nigra. It turns out that these particular neurons have a job to do that's very toxic to themselves. They make a chemical called dopamine, and the chemistry of making dopamine is, is toxic. So these cells die much more rapidly than most brain cells die. And they're not replaced. So that means, obviously, the number of such cells goes down over time. All of us have lost maybe 20% of them by old age. But some people are unlucky, and they lose them faster, and they've lost maybe 80%, and that's why they get Parkinson's disease. Oh, is this why they say that drug use of certain kinds might advance this, because you're constantly depleting and having to replenish dopamine so those cells might be working harder? Uh, kind of, yeah. It's probably way more complicated. But anyway, that's my guess. <laughs> Keep yeah. going. So, so the point is, stem cell therapy for Parkinson's disease should be an absolute comprehensive cure. It ought to just replace the cells that are missing and thereby restore the dopamine synthesis capacity of the brain. And sure enough, even though the first time this was tried 20 years ago, it was rather unsuccessful because we didn't know enough about how to manipulate stem cells. Now, people know a lot more and they're much more optimistic. There are new clinical trials in progress and people really think we're on the way to a cure. Wow. That's relieving because obviously anybody who's watched anyone age, that's one of the worst parts. Like, yes, when your body goes downhill, that's a bummer. But when your mind goes downhill, it's just it's like a tragedy. What else goes wrong in there? I mean, I did a little bit of research on my own, and there's a lot of, it's a little bit scary because there's just like these, I mean, this list of seven really scary sounding things, one of which was mutations, which always, you know, I've read a lot of comics growing up, is always kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, well, so mutations in our chromosomes probably only are responsible for one particular problem in aging, but the problem they're responsible for is a really huge one, namely cancer. Now, cancer, of course, we can define that at the cellular level as cells dividing where they're not supposed to, right? Okay. And the idea that fixing that is simply to um, generically stop that from happening. Now, a big challenge in developing therapies against cancer is that different cancers have found different tricks to evade the signals that would normally control how often they divide. So every cancer is different. And in fact, even within one cancer, every cell is different. So we have to find ways around that. We have to find things that these cells have in common, even though they have lots of things not in common. And that's why Sense Research Foundation is going after the telomere, the end of the chromosome. We're looking at ways to eliminate cancers by stopping them from extending their telomeres. And we're making some good progress in that area. We are basically trying to do, in a more powerful way, something that other groups have been trying to do for the past decade or so, essentially inhibiting the enzymes that are responsible for extending the telomeres. Wow. So of these seven things, we didn't go through all seven, which is, are there, are there others that are particularly nefarious that we should discuss? Or Not really. They're all equally nefarious. They're all equally nefarious? Okay. Yeah. We've got to fix them all. Is there a way that we can start to manage these on our own without a lot of these therapies and things like that, that that you're working to achieve? I mean, well, no, there isn't. I mean, of course, there's a couple of things that we can avoid doing that we all knew were bad for us, like smoking and getting right. serious overweight and so on, and, you know, having a bad diet. But I'm not saying anything original there. Right. There isn't anything new that we can say that over and above the obvious stuff that your mother told you that we can do that will significantly help most people. There may be things that some people can do, people who were born unlucky and who are in one way or another aging more rapidly than average, 
there are some things in some cases that can substantially standardize, you know, normalize the rate at which such people are aging. But if you're already normal, especially if you're doing better than normal, better than average, then basically there's nothing. We've got to develop therapies that are much more sophisticated. This is a random question, but you may be just the guy to ask. You know, some people look younger than others generally for a long time. I look younger than my age, and a lot of people who are my age look a lot older than what I would expect their age to be as well. And, and we've all met people like this where you're like 27, you have gray hair, or when you're 35 and you've got a baby face. Is this because of just our outward appearance is just different and associated with youth and fertility and we just happen to be kind of lucky there? Or does the aging process happen differently for different people? It seems like it would because it's so complex. Kind of, yeah. Certainly there is a correlation between how people look, how old people look, and how old people are on the inside. Some people inherently age a little bit more slowly than others, and indeed some people kind of get born older than others. There are influences on how rapidly you age that come even before birth and prenatal nutrition and such like. So, and that certainly played a part, albeit probably a minority, in explaining the variation that we see in longevity across the population. Some people dying at age 70 and some people not dying until 100. But still, the actual way in which people are aging, you know, the, the, the types of damage that accumulate and so on, are just the same. It's purely a case of how much a particular person of a particular age has. Wow, interesting. Yeah, because I've always wondered that, and I always wondered, does the inside match the outside when it comes to that? And in some cases it would, in other cases it's obviously irrelevant. So... You're looking for these different types of solutions. I mean, obviously, there are some quote-unquote ethical questions that might come along with this. Now, are we talking about taking the aging process, slowing it down, slash halting it? Or you'd kind of mention, I mean, in the word rejuvenation literally means to become young again. I mean, you're talking about taking it backwards. We're not talking about slowing. We're not talking about halting. We're talking about reversing direction here, Benjamin Button style. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I do want to point out that we're not talking about actually reversing the processes of aging. We're talking about reversing the consequences of those processes. Right, right. In other words, repairing the damage and taking us back to a state that is you know, where, we, where the body has the structure and composition more or less like how it was at a younger age. Right, yeah, That, of course, that makes sense. You're not going to reverse what your cells are doing. You're just going to alleviate some of the the damage that they're it's like getting your engine cleaned you're not talking you're not changing the way the engine works you're just scraping the gunk off the inside exactly yeah stupid question i'm sure but will then everyone who gets these therapies theoretically live forever or well until you get hit by a bus which you know you can't really the all the therapies in the world won't stop that from happening but will people be living forever are there what else catches up with us when we solve these problems You've absolutely got it. There should be nothing. We should be able to have a situation in which types of thing you die of and the risk that you have in the coming year, shall we say, of dying of those things does not depend on how long ago you were born. So in other words, your remaining expected lifespan will not change as you get older. So congratulations, everyone will die of a tragedy instead, right? If they have time. If they have time, yeah. But yeah, I mean, in principle, of course, we can fix that too. You know, I'm not working on stopping people from being hit by trucks, but some people are. Yes, yeah, there are people working on that. And it's hopefully they'll get there around the same time, right? Maybe sooner. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, your TED Talk has 2.6 million views, which is incredible. You know, we're talking about this is starting to gain a little bit of mainstream awareness. I'm happy to be a part of that. The ethical question that I, I I would love to hear is, what happens when the population explodes? I mean, if let's say this becomes mainstream over the next 50 years, and it's something that like, hey, your insurance will pay for this now. You know, everybody's getting this. You can go and it's so freely and cheaply available that the majority of the population is getting this. Is this something that you're thinking about, or is this like, hey, man, listen, this isn't my problem. I'm trying to solve aging. Leave me alone. You know, what do you think about when you look at that concern? Well, first of all, it is my problem because it's the kind of knee-jerk reaction that an awful lot of people have that stop them from giving me the money to get the research done. Really? That seems like a really dumb reason not to fund things. I mean, you might as well stop funding cancer because, ah, too many people will live. Well spotted. Yeah. Exactly. 
you know, is this really even an ethical question? It's hard to say, really, isn't it? I mean, what I have to remind people of is that what we're working on is just medicine. Medicine always has the side effect of allowing some people to live longer than they otherwise would. It's true that this particular type of medicine is likely to have a bigger side effect in that, in terms of longevity than anything we've seen before, but it's still a side effect. So if you're saying you don't want these therapies to be developed because of this or that problem that might be created as a result, then you're basically saying that there are circumstances in which medicine is a good thing and there are circumstances in which it's not a good thing, and in particular that medicine for the elderly that actually works is not a good thing which most people, when I confront them with what they're actually saying, they get a bit uncomfortable. But the point, of course, here is that we might have this problem or that problem be created as a side effect of solving the problem we have today of all these people getting sick and dying when they get older. And, you know, it's important to look at this. But when you look properly at it, it's really very difficult to get terribly exercised about it. In the case of overpopulation, you know, As you say, it takes time before these therapies could possibly, even in the best circumstance, actually alter the demographics of the world all that much. And a lot of other things are happening all at the same time. We're developing better renewable energy, solar power, uh, nuclear fusion, and so on. Everything that will reduce polluting tendencies and uh, increase, therefore, the carrying capacity of the planet so that we can have more people on the planet with less environmental impact. These things will be happening faster than any changes that might happen to population itself. Back to Dr. Aubrey Gray. Yeah, it seems like kind of a ridiculous argument. I mean, at that point, just say, hey, let's not get vaccinated for all these diseases that killed people because people should die at a natural rate. I mean, that's it's an invalid argument, but it did occur to me because Somehow stopping young people from dying is like, you know, let's do that. But stopping old people from dying, it seems like, well, you know, that could cause a problem and we shouldn't do that. But of course, when you're old and you're dying, you might have a different opinion. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was some time ago now, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, that Bob Butler coined the word ageism, you know, by analogy with sexism and racism and so on, and pointed out that old people are people too and we shouldn't discriminate against them. And, you know, saying that we shouldn't actually develop medicines that work against the ill health of the elderly is about as ageist as one can get. Yeah, I would say so. That's a good point. And and also, not only old people, older people are suffering from the effects of aging from what it sounds like. I mean, are there disorders by which younger people can have negative effects from some of the seven types of aging damage that you discussed? Oh, sure. Yeah, certainly there are a number of diseases of early life which have the same kind of etiology, the same kind of causes based on the accumulation of damage. Generally, they are congenital in some way. They are resulting from lacking gene or enzyme that would normally do some job that would slow age, slow the accumulation of damage down. If someone doesn't have that gene, then that particular type of damage may accumulate much more rapidly than normal and kill them with still kids. You know, so um So yeah, it seems like the benefits to to health and obviously the alleviation of suffering on behalf of younger people and older people alike kind of outweigh these hypothetical problems that might arise as a result of developing this technology, this medicine. Well, I think it's more than they kind of outweigh these things. Of course. You know, it's extremely difficult to imagine a scenario in which they could not outweigh them. The fact is, at the moment, we've got 100,000 people every day dying of this thing called aging. And, of course, most of them dying after a rather long period of you know, decline and disease and decrepitude and dependence and general misery. It's an astronomical problem. And the fact that so many of us are so good at putting it out of our minds doesn't stop it from being an astronomical problem. Really, even if we did have situations in which, for example, we had to choose to have fewer children than we would like in order to make space for the people who aren't dying, then, you know, is that really so bad? Is that really the wrong thing to do? Um, And, you know, we can go further. We can say, well, even if you have doubts about that, even if you're saying, well, maybe the problems that we'll create as a result of defeating aging, will be more severe than the problem we're solving. Then the question is, who's to say? Who is actually to make that decision? It's perfectly clear to me that the people who are entitled to make that decision are humanity of the future, not humanity of the present. If we say to ourselves, oh dear, oh dear, 
you know, there's going to be these problems, let's not go there, then what we're doing is denying humanity of the future the option whether to use these therapies or not. And they should be entitled to make that decision based on the information available to them, not only the choices they choose to make, but also the technologies that may or may not have been developed by that time, the information they will have. You know, it's completely obvious from a moral perspective that we have a clear moral obligation to get these therapies developed as quickly as possible. Do you have kids? Certainly not. Certainly not. Well, why not? Oh, because I'm all about making a difference. I'm all about, you know, doing stuff that wouldn't get done otherwise. And there are lots and lots of people already who are perfectly good at having kids. That's true. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I would have thought like, okay, you, you're looking at things pretty long term. Maybe you're looking at your own legacy. And you are. You're just not looking at it through reproduction. You're looking at it through actually kind of on the other end of the spectrum, right? If you think about it, you're looking at extending it the other way. I suppose. The, I don't think about my legacy very much. That's because you're really doing something. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? That's also true, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what kind of lifespans are we talking about here? I mean, are we talking about, you know, oh, everybody can live to, you know, 100? Or are we talking about, like, 150? I mean, what are we looking at here numbers-wise? Any idea? Right. Well, of course, as I say, this is just a side effect of what we get sick of. Because getting sick is the main reason people die. So... If we look at today's world and we say, well, okay, supposing you look at young adults and you say, what is their risk of death from things other than aging? Then, um, you know, it's pretty low. If you reach the age of, let's say, 26, uh, then your chance of not reaching the age of 27 is less than one in a thousand in the Western world. So that means that if you stayed that way with a less than one in a thousand risk of dying each year, however long you lived, then you probably would live to more than a thousand. In today's world, your risk of death goes up by about 10% each year. Oh, of course. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that, that's the basic number. But, of course, that's just completely speculative and unmeaningless, really, because it makes the assumption that everything else other than aging is going to stay the same and that we're not going to invent, you know, safer cars and technology to stop the planet being hit by an asteroid and so on and so forth. Right, sure. So, But theoretically, in your estimation, a four-digit lifespan... I mean, it's possible. You could live to be like 800 or 1,000 years old. I mean, that's that's insane. Do you, I, have you ever thought about would people just go batshit crazy by that age, not because of aging, but just because they've been, they're just tired? They've just been around too long? But that's the kind of the problem I'd like to have. Personally, I don't see any prospect of getting bored or getting in any way less enjoying of life as a result of having been born a long time ago. It just isn't the way that life works. Very little of how we choose to spend our lives, how we pick our priorities and so on, depends on how long ago we were born. As we get older, it increasingly depends on how long we think we have to live, but that's because the time that we think we have to live is going down. So, you know, when you could have been born arbitrarily long ago and you could live arbitrarily far into the future, you're not going to make decisions based on those things. Yeah, I mean, I personally think it would be really cool to see, like, Elon Musk's visions come into reality, see my great-great-great-grandkids do some pretty cool stuff. I could still crack the whip. That would be awesome, you know, on them. Uh, and I could see all these great scientists like you have their stuff come into reality if I could live long enough. I mean, you know, I could go live on Mars or something. That's friggin' fascinating. Probably not gonna happen within my lifetime without your technology. So I think that's pretty cool. Although, who knows? Now I sound like my dad. Stuff's moving so fast now, you don't even know what's gonna happen next. You'd mentioned a funding lack is keeping you keeping you limited, but what kind of dollar amounts are we talking about that you would need to like go pedal to the metal? The, the most shocking thing is that we're talking really small numbers. The thing about research is that the early stage research always costs a lot less than the later stuff. In medical research, you know, working in cell culture and with mice and so on, it's far less expensive than clinical trials, for example. Actually, I mean, the budget of Sense Research Foundation at the moment, the amount we spend each year is something around $5 million. Just putting one more zero on the end of that, taking it up to 50 or maybe $100 million, would, I think, treble the rate at which we're going. We'd be going three times faster. Um, not 10 times faster, because obviously we're doing the things that get the best bang for the buck, but still, at least three times faster. Tiny amounts of money. If you think about how much money the U.S. government spends on medical research in a year, it's $30 billion. It's several hundred times more than what we're talking about. It's a complete scandal. 
Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I mean, this is friggin' fascinating, of course. I guess, you know, you need to spend one of your lifetimes working on your political career to get this funded, right? Well, somebody does. Yeah, somebody know? does, yeah. Exactly. You might have to shave your beard if you run for office, and that's not an option, right? Right. <laughs> well, no, actually, it's not completely true. I have said that I will shave my beard off for a million dollars. Yeah, why not? All right. And somebody might take you up on that. I hope they do. Well, that's right. Yeah, it hasn't happened yet. I've said it quite a few times over the years. And now, it, in 2005, MIT, the technology review, they challenged people, scientists anyway, to disprove your claims here for 20 grand. And the challenge is still open. So that, to me, either says nobody really wants that money for some reason, your stuff is really hard to disprove, or that you're onto something, right? I'm, I'm leaning towards you're onto something, given our previous conversations. It's better than that, of course, because what actually happened was that in 2005, when this challenge was announced, a number of scientists did actually submit entries, which were unceremoniously thrown out by the panel of neutral experts that MIT Technology Review had assembled, including Craig Venter, well-known biotechnologist, both in sequence the human genome. So, yeah, I mean, that was a big step forward in terms of credibility. I knew that the work I was talking about made sense, but this really helped other people to understand that my more vocal critics really hadn't paid attention to what I was saying and were criticizing me for unscientific reasons. Now, what about the cost of this type of treatment? I mean, this might be impossible for you to predict because you don't necessarily yet know what's needed. It, it might be too far away, but... What type of of substances or treatments would this maybe require? And would this be something that's only available to like the uber elite in the beginning because it's 10 million bucks for one shot of whatever it is? Or is this mostly based on, so far, things that are readily accessible, just not sure how to use them yet? Yeah, it's actually a really easy question to answer once you think it through. Because the thing about these therapies is that they will save the country money, a huge amount of money. At the moment, aging is fabulously expensive. And I'm not talking the medical research here, I'm talking the medical expenditure. 90% of medical care goes on the diseases and disabilities of old age in the Western world. Furthermore, we have to take into account the huge indirect costs. Not only the fact that the kids of the elderly are less productive than they could because they're spending time looking after their sick parents, but also the fact that the elderly are no longer contributing wealth to society the way they were when they were more able-bodied. You know, these things add up to the most extraordinary economic cost. And that means that it would be economically suicidal for any country not to simply front-load the investment necessary to ensure that these therapies are available to everybody who's old enough to need them very, very, very soon after they become available to anybody. That's a critical thing. And the thing is that it's also going to be something that society can actually think through and, and implement before it's necessary, before the therapies are actually developed. In the decade or so running up to the development of these therapies, everyone will know that it's only a matter of time because there will have been impressive enough results in the laboratory, you know, in mice and so on, that it can't be argued anymore. So there will be absolute electoral, you know, imperative. It would be electorally suicidal not to front load this investment, to put money into the building of medical infrastructure, the training of personnel and so on, so that when these therapies do arrive, then everybody who's old enough to need them will be able to get them irrespective of their ability to pay. Any country that doesn't do that will be bankrupt in 20 years because they'll be spending so much money on sick people. Yeah, Social Security, I mean, was one of the things I was actually going to ask you about in healthcare. But yeah, if we didn't really need a lot of the associated symptom treatment and those same people with a 100 years of experience in, an, in a really complex industry, uh, plus the fresh blood that comes with youth, I mean, that's a powerful equation. You're not losing your best workers because they want to go sit on a beach for their last 20 years, right? Exactly right. Well, this is amazing and frankly, really fascinating. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure that you get across other than where people can find your work? 
Oh, I don't think so, actually. I mean, uh, obviously, you'll have a link to sense.org. Of course. Where we have all the information about what we're doing, about what we have done, about why we're doing it, about why it's important. And, of course, there's a nice, big, friendly donate button at the top of the page. Yes. So, and I think you've covered all the bases, actually. I think you've, said, you've, you've let me talk a lot about the science and the social impact and so on. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know it's late over there, and I really appreciate your wisdom, and I certainly appreciate the problems that you're trying to tackle. Marvelous. Thanks very much, Jordan. Thank you, Aubrey. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fascinating stuff. I mean, the seven types of aging damage, what happens to your cells, what happens when people live forever, what happens when the population explodes, and should people live forever? The fact that we can get younger and that this is something that might realistically happen in our lifetime is friggin' fascinating to me. I want to know, would you do it? Would you want to get younger? Would you want to stay young? Or do you feel like there's a time which is just your time to go? I'm curious. And I especially want to hear from some of our older listeners as well, what they start to think about. Because I know as I've been getting older, I start to think about it more and more. And I'm only 35. So I'd love to hear what somebody who's in their 40s, 50s, and 60s thinks about this as well. And you younger guys out there, this is a very, very real possibility within your lifetime. And I'm curious what you guys think about that. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. Dr. DeGray was a suggestion by a fan, and I rely on you to help keep my finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit, let me know. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Dr. DeGray on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Bootcamp details for live programs at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And also on the website are bonus episodes that aren't released in the iTunes feed for those of you who just can't get enough AOC. Remember to subscribe in the show on iTunes or check us out on our network, Podcast One. Alternately, we have our iPhone and Android apps available as well. Getting the app will get you around firewalls if you're in one of those countries that blocks or filters the internet. And of course, that downloads straight from our server so you can slide one under the door there. And you can help us subscribe in iTunes, give a five-star rating, and write something nice, and I'll love you forever. Go to iTunes.com slash The Art of Charm, and it'll take you right there. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of The Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 